we expected here in Sweden to fight the Soviets when this was developed. And we expected that the Soviets will have such a huge advantage in numbers and in firepower and such that they will probably cause massive disruption to uh, to the information flows, to the uh, chain of command and such, so that if people need instructions they will become passive and they will become easy targets for the Soviets during the initial onslaught. So the whole structure was that people need to be able to act independently because they will not need to have a chain of command that is always perfectly operational. So if the chain of command is disrupted, they will still know what to do and be able to remain efficient. Welcome to Innovational Correctness, a podcast all about innovation and transformation, hosted by David Luna, author, keynote speaker, and founder of Gamma Digital and Beyond. David and his guests discuss real-world practical advice on how to best harness the creativity of your employees and go from idea to product, giving you unique perspectives and insights into their success, all while separating hype from reality and replacing bullshit bingo with common sense. Let's jump right in to the show. Welcome back to another episode of the Innovational Correctness Podcast. I really have a very unique episode for today, one that I'm pretty sure you haven't heard of before. In today's episode, I talked to Tony Ingerson about how the Swedish army quickly gained the reputation of being one of the most trigger-happy and insubordinate UN units in the Bosnian War and were celebrated as war heroes, whereas the very disciplined and professional Dutch army forced the entire Dutch government to resign. So Tony has a PhD in political science with a research focus on subcultures, military decision-making, and public administration. He also teaches political science and intelligence analysis, which include tactical decision-making in military and intelligence contexts, counterintelligence, organizational cultures, intelligence failures, espionage, and industrial espionage as well. He also taught courses on international relations, theories on armed conflict, the EU terrorism, and international law. Tony also previously served in the Swedish Armed Forces, where he worked on analyzing air launch weapon system as well as the Naval Command. In addition, he also runs a small consultancy and market research company on the side, serving mostly international clients from the security and defense sector. And without further ado, let's go meet Tony. Welcome to the podcast, Tony. Thank you. Do you want to introduce yourself to the listeners and explain who you are and what you do? Sure. So my name is Tony Ingeson. I have a PhD in political science and I work at Lund University in Sweden. Uh, so what I do uh, most days is I teach intelligence analysis and political science. And on the political science side, I mostly teach methods. And uh, I do research on uh, these days, I mostly do research in intelligence analysis. So I do research on things like espionage and counterintelligence, decision making to some extent. And uh, previously, when I wrote my PhD dissertation, I was mostly researching decision making in military organizations at the lower levels. So that what we would call the tactical level in a military organization. So the first time I came across you as an author was actually on Reddit where one of your articles was posted and I found that 
article extremely fascinating because it highlighted an aspect of military or military leadership in general that I haven't heard elsewhere because, you know, when I think of military, it's always order and discipline and following orders. And that's why I reached out to you because I thought this would be a very interesting topic for a podcast episode. But before we get ahead of ourselves, do you want to briefly summarize what that article uh, said to our listeners? Sure. So the article is based on uh, one of the chapters from my PhD dissertation, uh, and it covers the Swedish, Danish, and also to some extent Norwegian, but mostly Swedish-Danish uh, peacekeeping unit that was deployed to Bosnia between 1993 and 1995 as part of the uh, United Nations peacekeeping mission to Bosnia. Um, after 1995, uh, the responsibility for this mission switched to NATO. So the, the, the people stayed and the unit stayed, but it, it was uh, transferred to NATO uh, command. So I haven't studied it after 95 much, just during the UN years, because that's what I think is most interesting. And the, the, the reason I studied this case is because the Swedish-Danish unit really stands out compared to the other peacekeeping units that were deployed during the United Nations era in Bosnia. So what you learn when you study peace and conflict studies and you look at Bosnia during the UN years in the 90s is that it was generally regarded as a, a, a huge failure, uh, to be honest. So it, it was one of the things that really uh, had, a, had a massive impact on the reputation of the United Nations and how the United Nations organized peacekeeping, because it really didn't work at all, basically. But the Swedish-Danish unit, on the other hand, did things very differently, and uh, not at all the way they were supposed to. So they disregarded orders and they did things the way they thought they should be done, which was way more aggressively and using more force. Uh, and in so doing, I argue that they were quite a bit more successful than the other units, precisely because they did things their own way. So that's what I was interested in looking at. And I wanted to look at the organizational culture uh, that fosters this kind of decision making and uh, and how how these people thought about the situation they were in and the priorities they had and uh, yeah, what made them act the way they did, basically. Before we continue, I think it might make sense for those listeners that were maybe too young or don't remember what the Bosnian War was all about to kind of briefly summarize what that conflict was all about and how it started so the listeners have a sound basis of the conflict that we're talking about. Yeah, sure. It is, <laughs> it is a, a, a quite a long story, but I'm I'll try to really give you the brief version. So uh, there was the Yugoslavian Federation, uh, which was created after World War II, and it united these different parts on the Balkans, these different countries that had existed in different forms for quite some time, and it, they were united into Yugoslavia. And for quite a few decades, that worked quite well. Uh, I think. Uh, I mean, it wasn't democratic or anything, but it it worked in the terms um, that it wasn't. There were no hostilities. It was a peaceful country. But then, in in, uh, in the late eighties, uh, early nineties, started to fall apart. Yugoslavia, and in nineteen ninety one, first of all, Slovenia and Croatia wanted uh, to be independent. They no longer wanted to be part of the uh, Yugoslavian Federation, and there was a brief war. Uh, with Slovenia, but Slovenia managed to extract themselves quite successfully and quite quickly early on from the 1990s to 1994. 
from the rest of Yugoslavia. And it stayed pretty much that way. Uh, there were also some skirmishes involving Croatia, which did not end quite as quickly. And then in 1992, we get to the situation in Bosnia, which is what I've been looking at. And in 1992, Bosnia had been looking at Slovenia, looking at Croatia, and seeing how they declared independence, and then Bosnia too wanted to be independent. But then things didn't turn out so well. So um, instead, there was uh, what we would call an intrastate conflict, which is you know a civil war in regular phrasing. Uh, and the war in Bosnia had three sides, three main sides. So there were the Bosnians, or the Bosniaks, as they're usually referred to. They wanted uh, an independent Bosnia. Then there was the Bosnian Serb army, which is usually usually referred to as the VRS, uh, which was based in the in the Serb part of Bosnia, called uh, Republika Srpska, uh, and they wanted to uh, yeah, basically reinforce and establish Serb influence over Bosnia, and they were supported by the former Yugoslavian army uh, called the JNA. Uh, which was Serb-dominated. So that's how it could shift over to mostly supporting the Serb side. And then the third part was the Croatian HVO, which were local Croatian units fighting for Croat influence in Bosnia, because there were Croats living in Bosnia as well. And they were supported by the main Croatian army. Uh, To put it simply, you had... Bosnia was uh, and still is a multi-ethnic state. So you had Serbs, Croats... Bosniaks and these three sides basically competing for influence in territory and that's why there there was a war in Bosnia and to make things more complicated there were also a number of paramilitary units active during the war uh, and they were led by mostly warlords or various unsavory characters Uh, so sometimes these paramilitary units would be slightly more under control and fight for more strategic or political goals and sometimes they would be more roving kind of bands of criminals. Uh, they would loot and steal from civilians. They would rape and kill civilians. Uh, they would uh, try to establish smuggling routes, uh, things like that. So some some were more in line, some were more on the purely criminal side. And they were quite unpredictable and difficult to control. And they made things... A lot more difficult. So for the peacekeepers in Bosnia, you had the three main sides, the Bosniaks, the Bosnian Serbs, and the Croats to uh, to handle. And then you also had these paramilitary units. That So the, quite a complex situation on the ground, I'd say. So then Norbad II, which was, I believe, a Swedish-Danish tank battalion, arrived in Bosnia uh, as part of the UN peacekeeping mission. And what I found most fascinating about the article was the fact that they quickly gained the reputation of the most trigger-happy UN unit in Bosnia, and apparently on multiple occasions, utterly disregarding orders from its highest political authorities. And now the listeners might have, you know, the question is, okay, was this just one particular unit? Was this a, an example of a, a bunch of bad apples? Uh, what was the case here? Uh, so just quick correction first it was a tank company and Norbat 2 was a battalion so there was a ta- Danish tank company within the battalion and it was technically what is called a mechanized battalion and I would say it, this was not an example of bad apples maybe good apples in that case so the thing we have to keep in mind is that perhaps the main reason the rest of the UN mission was uh, having such difficulties operating and why it was everything was working so badly is because 
political leaders back home in all these countries that were deploying peacekeepers were trying to micromanage things. And what they were mostly concerned about was avoiding risk for their troops. And this is also something that people may not find easy to relate to today because we are used to things like Afghanistan, Iraq, uh, Syria. So we're used to these conflicts today where troops from Western countries are also uh, facing significant risks and taking losses. But in the 90s, people weren't used to that sort of thing. And national governments were very worried that if even 10 maybe peacekeepers were killed, that that would cause major backlash for the for the entire government. So they at all costs, they wanted to avoid any kind of risk for their own peacekeepers. And that's why they were trying to micromanage. And in the case of Nordbat II, the commander in Bosnia, uh, the battalion commander, he identified this situation as being one that it was quite risky if you wanted to actually achieve something. So if you wanted to achieve what he thought were the mission goals, the mission objectives, which was to protect civilians... And that is also something that was specifically written into the instructions for the UN troops, that they were supposed to protect civilians and to uh, separ- keep the sides, to the, the parties to the conflict separated to prevent uh, the war from escalating, basically. So he, his assessment was that if you want that, if you want to protect the civilians in particular, then you have to accept risks. Otherwise, you're not going to be able to, to accomplish that mission objective. And the way things worked and still work uh, in the Swedish armed forces is that if you are the one on location and you know what's going on and you are able to tell what's needed in order to achieve the mission objectives, then you're supposed to do what you think is best to solve the problem, to achieve those mission objectives. And that includes a mandate to disregard orders because people who are far away and much higher up in the hierarchy, they're not going to be able to give you good instructions because they don't know what's going on. They don't have up-to-date information. They can't get a complete view of the situation. So he was basically doing what the Swedish armed forces were trained to do, and the army in, in particular. What the army was trained to do was to try to identify what's going on, what is the local situation, what are the mission objectives, what are, what are the strategic objectives, and then take action to to see to it that these objectives are achieved. Okay, so there's quite a few things that I would like to unpack here for the listeners. On the one hand, I see a lot of similarities between the military, which is a large organization, and large corporations in the private sector. But then I also see what seems like a contradiction, at least in terms of how we civilians, like myself, that never been to the military, view the military, which is there's a a strong and large hierarchy, there's a chain of command, and it's all about following orders. Then what you described about Norbad too made a lot of sense too, which is basically you don't tell the individual soldier or the general doesn't tell the individual soldier where to shoot, where to, to run to, because he's the one with the most information. He's the one in the battlefield, so you wouldn't really tell him what to do. Similar in large corporations where you don't hire smart R&D people, for instance, and then basically tell them what to do. So there I see similarities. But again, how civilians view the military, we think about is all about order and discipline and following orders. So I think it would make sense to give the listeners maybe a a quick rundown or simplified version of how decisions are made in the military and why a certain leadership style is used there. So there are huge differences between 
first of all, between different nations and the kind of traditions and military culture they have. But there are also differences within nations because different military units, different branches, they have different needs, different cultures and different structures. But the most typical managerial uh, structure, uh, I guess, is the is the top-down hierarchical one. So uh, you have um, generals or such at the top and they have the strategic and political objectives and they know what to do, what to what they need to achieve. And then they try to convert this into something more practical, something more concrete, and then they provide this to their subordinates, perhaps in the term uh, in, in the form of plans, operational plans, operational objectives, and then their subordinates take this information and then they create more detailed instructions to pass on to their subordinates and so on and so on. So that people at the bottom end of this chain, they get very concrete instructions such as, you know, attack at this hour to in this direction and secure this on this location. And then the people at the top, they try to maintain as as best they can a kind of situational awareness and then they adapt as things change and give you give out new instructions. So that's basically the, 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 the simple way of explaining it. So from, from, from top to bottom, instructions are issued and then the people at the top try to uh, cope with changes and issue new instructions and then they travel down the chain. It should also be, be emphasized here that when it comes to things that require a high degree of coordination, specifically uh, anything that involves aircraft, so when you have planes, you can't let planes fly around however they like, because the, that then there's a very high risk of them colliding, if nothing else, and also various other problems, and they can't land all at once and such. So for example, things that involves aircraft or ships, then usually you want a high degree of control, centralized control, because you need to coordinate all of these units. You can't let them do whatever they want. Whereas in, in, a, in, an, in a ground forces situation, uh, you can let them act more independently. Not always, but you, you sometimes you may think that letting them act independently is, is a better trade-off than trying to coordinate them. That makes a lot of sense. So essentially, we could say that the military is a very large, hierarchical, top-down organization that, say, has a general at the top that then has some overarching strategy. He breaks that down into tactics and orders for the individual soldier to follow and, and execute, which kind of reminded me of a time in high school where I worked for a retail organization called APHIS, which stands for, I think, Army and Air Force Exchange Service. Essentially, is run by the military, and their leadership style is very military-oriented, but employs civilians. And I remember one time where I asked the boss's boss for some advice, and later that day I got reprimanded from my direct superior for not following the chain of command. To me, that was very unintuitive. And I tend to go the direct route and circumvent certain rules that I don't find sensible to follow. So the, the, the question I would have here is, why don't more militaries and armies around the world, looking at you know, conflicts today that are more volatile and more dynamic, give these soldiers more autonomy? Well, I would say that there are two main answers. So the first one is that the, the rational one, if you like, is that if you give people that kind of autonomy, then you will not be able to coordinate them and you cannot expect them to coordinate themselves either, because at least not in, a, in, a, in any kind of scale. Uh, so, for example, if we compare this to the Soviet or Russian uh, version of command, which is 
almost the opposite. That is, when you really give people very strict uh, instructions and you do not want them to take initiatives and act independently. But that gives you another advantage, and that is that if everything works, which it doesn't always, but if it does work, then you can pretty much set the clock uh, after these units. You can, for example, you can have huge numbers of people act in synchronization, which can be quite effective if that's what you need. For example, if you have, uh, it doesn't have to be a Soviet uh, kind of managerial style. You could also have like a Western kind of army, but perhaps you want to maintain some kind of synchronization because you have very complex logistics chains or things like that. You can't have people run off and then lose track of them because it becomes too difficult to manage. So that's why maybe you want a higher degree of, of control. But, uh, and, and this is an important point, is that for, for Sweden, it made more sense to adopt uh, a solution that was based on autonomy because we expected here in Sweden to fight the Soviets when this was developed. And we expected that the Soviets will have such a huge advantage uh, in numbers and in firepower and such that they will probably cause massive disruption to uh, to the information flows to the uh, chain of command and such so that if people need instructions they will become passive and they will become easy targets for the Soviets during the initial onslaught. So the whole structure was that people need to be able to act independently because then they will not they will not need to have a chain of command that is always perfectly operational. So if the chain of command is disrupted, they will still know what to do and be able to remain efficient until the chain of command can be reestablished. And the there are two other interesting examples of, of the same kind of philosophy. And perhaps the most interesting in some ways is the Germans during World War II, because at the tactical level, they were the ones that they are the ones that are usually associated with this, I should say. So they developed this kind of thinking during the last year of World War I, and then they refined it during the 30s, and then they implemented it during World War II. So they had a pretty sizable, I mean, they had a huge army, and they still had this kind of autonomy. But that also, in some cases, made it difficult to to keep things synchronized, organized, and to keep logistics working smoothly and such. So it, it is a bit of a trade-off. But in, in a military situation, the, the thing that would determine your decision would be how much, how much what, are, what are you expecting in terms of, of not, perhaps not chaos, but friction, as we would call it. So how many unforeseen events are you expecting? What do you think is going to happen? And the more unpredictable the situation is going to be, the more you will gain by providing autonomy and vice versa. So if everything is always going to be very predictable, then you don't, the people won't really need that much autonomy. But if things are un- going to be unpredictable, then autonomy is going to be very valuable. I'm seeing, seeing a lot more similarities from the military if we compare it to, say, large corporations and startups. You know, I always tell my clients, you shouldn't look at the method, you shouldn't look at the, the tools that you want to use, but you should look at the environment you're in, the context is what's actually important here. So a large organization can never become a startup. The simple reason is a startup is in a different environment, in a different context, and therefore it needs different set of tools and resources and, and, and mindsets. So a startup has to still find its uh, product market fit and a large organization already has that. So it's not so much about the the tools that are used, but the context. And uh, this whole debate uh, also about agile versus waterfall and that's not really that relevant. The, the relevant part is here is the context you're in. You don't need to go to the bathroom in an agile fashion. It's always the same sequence. You go in, you do your thing, you wash your hands and you're out. You don't need to iteratively try something new. It's always the same very predictable pattern. 
And if you're in a very predictable environment uh, and you're in the military, maybe you want this high degree of coordination so you have scale and can essentially steamroll the enemy. So essentially, it's about what environment you're in, what context, and then you select the most effective tool for that objective. I could add that one of the advantages of having this kind of autonomy is that it cuts down on your response time. It, it gives you the ability to respond very quickly to changes. And that might be valuable in some contexts. So I've, I've looked at some uh, back when I was doing this, when I was writing my PhD thesis, I was looking at some um, business examples just to see how, how, kind of tra- how transferable this kind of logic would be to a business context. And um, for example, I was looking at the early years of, of personal computing, uh, late 70s. Well, actually, you can start even early 70s, if you like. Uh, so you had a company like Xerox, uh, and it was creating these credible innovations, which were way ahead of their time. And you had this this new market that was developing that no one had ever seen before, and things were moving very quickly. And then Xerox completely failed to, to make use of these incredible gains they had achieved technologically. Uh, and instead, as we all know, IBM and Apple stepped in because they, well, IBM perhaps isn't known to be the, the most agile or quick uh, reacting organization, but Apple surely was fairly small, fairly responsive, able to quickly move uh, in the 80s, get a product on market, really uh, make, a, make an impression. And then Xerox, they really lost momentum. And uh, once they were trying to catch up, it was too late. So they have because they had a huge bureaucratic top down organization, and that really didn't work out for them, I would say. Yeah, absolutely agree. I mean, there are so many more examples, like if we take BlackBerry versus Apple as an example, and we try to understand why these legacy companies failed due to a more innovative competitor, then a lot of decisions that the CEOs of the failed companies made make a lot of sense. They were rational decisions that the CEOs made. And I'm pretty sure that a lot of the listeners would have made the same decisions. Now, we have to go back and try to understand why that's the case. Now, it comes down to a couple of factors, and the main one is risk or the risk averseness. BlackBerry back then was a huge, very successful company, and they had a huge cash cow. So they were like printing money. And now imagine this uh, employee comes by and says, hey, I got this new idea for this innovative uh, new technology. It's upcoming. And you, as a CEO, ask, well, how big is the market? And you're like, well, we're not really sure, but it's really small between one and five million. As a large organization, which BlackBerry was, these small markets do not satisfy the large growth demands of large companies. Now you're supposed to pull resources from your cash cow people, money, put it into this new market that's very uncertain, risky, and it's very small. And then you're supposed to go back to the shareholders, the CEO, and then tell them this crazy story about this one employee that thinks he's innovative and wants to invest all the money basically in this new technology. Now, from that perspective, it makes a lot of rational sense that the CEOs of failed companies made. And that brings me back to what you were saying about the UN and Norbat too, where the UN was just very bureaucratic, but a lot of decisions that they made made a lot of sense. And this kind of reminded me of an example about David Marquet. He was a former U.S. Navy captain of a nuclear submarine fleet, where he turned one of the worst fleets into one of the most successful ones by essentially changing the leadership style. 
He explained how he did that. He says that most hierarchies operate in the following fashion, where people at the bottom have the information, but they don't really have the authority to make those decisions. So we essentially create a system to channel that information up to authority, up to the top, and people at the top then make the decision and it comes back down to the people at the bottom in order to execute. And he says that this is the incorrect way to use a hierarchy in thinking organizations. And the correct way, based on his assessment, is we take the authority for making decisions and push it down to the people with the information. And he says that not only creates a more resilient, agile, and responsive organization, but it also makes the people and the employees happier too. So here's my question. His experience seems to mirror that of the Swedish military culture of mission command. Did he steal that maybe from the Swedish or what's your take on that? So it's it's pretty uh, interesting and a bit funny that this example of yours concerns submarines because submarines is what I wrote about in another chapter uh, in my in my PhD dissertation. But it was World War II submarines, so it's not exactly the same. But an important aspect of submarines that still holds true is that submarines, among naval units, submarines are among the ones that are most independent. I would say they are one of the kinds of naval vessel that require the the least uh, degree. Of, uh, of coordination because they, they are supposed to operate independently. To me, this makes sense because, as I said before, if you, want coordin- if you need coordination, then you may not want to give too much autonomy because that makes coordination difficult. But in this case, you probably don't need that much coordination, so it becomes worth uh, the trade-off instead of giving them autonomy because that makes them more efficient. Uh, so it makes perfect sense. And I, I, don't think he, I don't think he got it from Sweden. I think, if anything, he probably got it more from, from the Germans because that's the, that's the classic example. So the Israelis are also famous for this, but the Israelis, I think, also some inspiration from the Germ- the way the Germans handled tactical command during World War II. So it has developed differently in different places. In this case, it makes a lot of sense. But it should be added, again, that if you have surface ships, then you need them to travel in, uh, in uh, formation, for example. So have you seen um, this uh, recent movie Greyhound, where you have a convoy? Yeah, uh, with, uh, what's his name? Yeah, Tom Hanks, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Uh, great movie. Yeah, so if you have a huge number of ships and you need them to travel across the Atlantic, then you need to keep them coordinated, right? Because you, you can't let every ship do whatever it feels like in every situation because they would either they would get lost or they would collide or, yeah. That's an example of where you probably need more direct control, centralized control, just to make things work. But for a submarine, this makes a lot of sense. And one of the things I've been looking at is that sometimes it's easy to look at these situations where you have either this or either that. And then I can recommend, okay, so here you need to give them more autonomy because that will make them more efficient. Uh, it will cut down on the response time and such, make them more uh, more able to handle uh, um, situations that you could, couldn't predict. And sometimes I say, well, okay, so here you need more, more coordination. But I think that one of the more important lessons here is that if you have a, a large organization, you may need a mix of this. You may need some people to have autonomy and some people to be more coordinated. And if you manage to to mix different kind of cultures, then they can complement each other. So you can have a kind of a synergy effect. It makes the organization as a whole 
much, much more, more effective because the people who need autonomy have autonomy and the people who need coordination have coordination. So, of course, it's, it's difficult because you need to be able to identify what kind of culture you need to have where. But in my experience in, in organizations, these cultures tend to grow organically. So you need to keep an eye on what, what is actually going on within your organization. What kind of culture is growing here? And it might be a good, a good culture because it maybe it has adapted to the situation and maybe it has developed a way to be Become effective, but it could also be detrimental because sometimes organization organizational cultures develop in a different direction, and then they actually can become quite damaging to the organization as a whole. Yeah, and that comes back down to uh, what we had before, which was looking at the environment and context you're in, looking at what is the objective that you're trying to achieve, and then deciding what type of organization you'll need, what type of mindset, people, culture, etc., and not put the horse before the cart, so to speak, all while remembering that what might work in one context might be a complete failure in another. And going back to Norbat 2, if I remember correctly, the approach that the commanding officer, whose name was uh, Ulf Henriksen, uh, took, well, let's say he had uh, mixed reviews. On the one hand, you had Commander Michael Rose from the UN Press Corps, who was very impressed by his robust approach. But then in Sweden at home, his approach didn't go down all that well, with some of them accusing him of being very trigger-happy and too aggressive. But then ultimately, the proof was in the pudding. Henriksen's approach resulted in being codified in the Swedish Peace Support Operations Doctrine in 1997. And Henriksen and his soldiers also became known for redrawing the rules rules of international peacekeeping by aggressively protecting civilians, tactics not really popular among UN officials back then. Can you give us some more insight into why the commanding officer Ulf Henriksen of Norbad II had such mixed reviews? Yeah, so I would say that while things were still uh, unfolding uh, in Bosnia, Swedish politicians were basically acting the way politicians were acting in a lot of other countries that had deployed troops. So they were concerned because they noticed that, okay, things are moving fast in Bosnia and things are, it's more of a dynamic and more difficult and a more hostile situation than we expected because Sweden had deployed peacekeepers to a number of missions before during the Cold War and they were quite peaceful compared to Bosnia, not that much happening. But in Bosnia, there was a war still going on. There wasn't a peace to keep, in a manner of speaking. So they wanted to they wanted to ascertain some kind of control because they were mostly concerned with what would happen if there are Swedish losses. And Henriksson, he he didn't believe in that kind of that kind of mentality because that would make it impossible for him to operate, which is also what happened to the other UN units. So instead, he basically did what what he thought was best. And after some time had passed, the Swedish politicians had to realize that his solution was giving was producing much better results than what would otherwise have been the case. So if so if they had had their way, the politicians, then things would probably have turned out quite differently and much worse. And that would have been a bigger problem for the politicians afterward. But some of them were a bit petty. So Henriksson, I think, didn't quite get the promotions he had deserved afterwards. Some people probably held a bit of a grudge secretly. But of course, the Swedish politicians, they could, um, after this, they, they could sit back and relax and say, well, this went quite well especially compared to what happened in the Netherlands. 
and all the uh, all the years the debate that that happened in the Netherlands after Srebrenica. Uh, so we didn't have we didn't have that. The Bosnia mission was not even during the UN years was not that controversial here. Not after the fact when people had seen what had happened. So people here were quite proud of the mission and they felt that it, I mean course that it wasn't like a brilliant success because it was more or less an impossible mission to start with but given the under the circumstances the swedish danish unit did more than anyone could have expected they achieved more than anyone could have expected and of course some of that glory if you want also reflected on the politicians afterwards so they of course they 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 didn't criticize henriksson after this when they realized that he had been right all along but some people held a bit of a grudge still i think yeah and you can really can't argue with what he achieved And I believe Henriksen and his soldier also saved uh, the lives of 200 civilians that were detained in a school, and they apparently named a school after him in Bosnia as well. So what I found very frightening, and I think it was mentioned in your article, which was the fact that UN soldiers were not allowed to shoot back, even though they were shot upon. And to me, as someone, as a civilian that has never been to war or has been in the army, that sounds very peculiar. And, you know, if I'm being shot at and my objective, my mission is to protect the civilians, why am I not allowed to to shoot back in self-defense in, you know, protecting these civilians? So maybe you can kind of explain the logic behind that. Yeah, so the UN had, it also reflects the UN as, as a top-down hierarchical organization. So the, the basic mandate that was decided upon uh, in the UN, the, the overall strategic objectives, they were fairly robust. They didn't set these limits. What happened was that farther, uh, slightly farther down the, the chain, people started adding more and more of these complicated rules for when you're supposed to do what. So in, in practical terms, it became very difficult to respond to anything. I think what, what this reflects is that farther down the food chain uh, in the UN, they didn't want to escalate things. They didn't want to provoke anyone. They didn't want to uh, be seen as, as, uh, as they were taking sides. And, and they wanted to be as cautious as possible. And that just wasn't a good solution here because these these main sides as well as these paramilitaries they learned very quickly how to exploit this so they realized that okay so this is how they act when you so if you push them then they will start to fold so they they didn't just randomly start shooting and and attacking un units because that would have probably forced the un units to do something so they were more clever so they would add all these obstacles make things difficult perhaps some random shooting that you couldn't see where it came from just to scare them and things like that. And then they started adding more and more of the uh, of this kind of force and, and um, adding obstacles, making things difficult. So what the Swedes did was that they realized, Swedes and Danes realized from the start that we, we have to be able to move freely, for example. If we, if we allow these parties to the conflict, to prevent us from getting anywhere, then we won't be able to achieve anything. So if they set up roadblocks, then we have to find a way to get through them. Uh, we can't let them delay us and, and stop us all the time. So sometimes it wasn't a matter of shooting back. Sometimes it was a matter of having the courage, basically, to escalate a situation in order to avoid a more difficult and more negative outcome farther down the road. Whereas the UN basically wanted to be very, very, very cautious. And, and because the UN hadn't really faced much along these lines before. The UN was used to being well, more or less welcome 
more or less accepted by the parties to the conflict. And here they weren't at all. So what Henriksson's approach was that when all three main sides in the conflict, when all three submitted protests against the actions of Nordbad, he said, well, here's the proof that I'm not taking sides. Here's the proof that I'm, that I'm impartial because everyone is protesting my actions. That means I'm impartial. Uh, so, and the other ones were basically, they didn't want any protests because that might look, give the impression that they were being partial. Yeah, that reminds me of, of a, a quote that goes something like, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. And that seems to kind of mirror what happened here with the UN. And it was very understandable from the UN side not to, you know, take sides to be impartial, but then also the side of Norbat to disobey certain orders in order to protect the civilians, if that's my objective. What what I found ironic, though, is that the two governments of, of Sweden and the Netherlands, which you kind of mentioned, is it had very different outcomes for the government officials. On the one hand side, Sweden's uh, government was vindicated, so to speak, and government of the Netherlands, I believe, in early 2000s had to resign over uh, Srebrenica. So can you kind of highlight that as well? Because I found that very fascinating. If you follow the rules, in this case, that leads to a bad outcome. And the way the, the, the Swedes and the Danish uh, reacted helped actually the, the Swedish government. Yeah, so in the Netherlands, the, the government officials, they started micromanaging even before they deployed troops to Bosnia. So they were interfering with things like what kind of equipment do the did the Dutch peacekeepers bring? So they said, for example, uh, we can't bring a, a lot of heavy weapons because that might seem provocative. Uh, so they should have only um, the bare minimum of of, of weaponry. And uh, when the UN asked them, so uh, how about guarding this enclave of Srebrenica, which was even when they were deployed for the first time, you could immediately see that it was going to be difficult because it was surrounded by Bosnian Serb units and they were controlling the roads going in and out of this enclave. And of course, they made maximum use of this, the Bosnian Serbs. So they were constantly interfering with the freedom of movement for the Dutch and they were starving them of supplies and diesel and food and uh, everything. So in Sweden, instead, what happened was that when it was decided that we were going to deploy, they gave the this task to the military organization and the military organization did what it was used to doing so it said okay uh, here's a battalion commander then they asked the battalion commander what what do you want what do you think is appropriate to bring and he said i want a lot of firepower he said because this could, this could get difficult and if i have tanks and if i have uh, support weapons if i have a, a, a strong mechanized battalion then i'll be able to hold my own to some extent and this wasn't uncontroversial at the time, especially not that he wanted a Danish tank company, because there weren't a lot of vehicles like that being deployed under UN flag to, to Bosnia. But he said, no, I, I got to have those tanks. I got to have this, this strong battalion, because otherwise I won't be able to do what I need to do. And since the military was used to, to working independently, the head of the Swedish army said, OK, you'll get what you need. You'll get what you want. And there weren't really any structures in place to allow the politicians to to override that decision whereas in the Netherlands the 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 politicians and the senior management of the military were much more in, entangled with each other and more attentive to each other even the there was a, a conflict even in the Netherlands between the uh, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs and and the Ministry of Defense over what kind of equipment they were al allowing and once the Swedish unit was on its way to Bosnia the UN also asked Sweden actually um, do you want to to take responsibility for Srebrenica. Uh, this was before the Dutch were deployed to Srebrenica. 
Srebrenica. And, uh, and Henriksson said, well, if I am going to, to take responsibility for Srebrenica, I need the full battalion and I need the tanks inside the enclave. Otherwise, I cannot protect it. And they said, well, the, the Bosnian Serbs are never going to agree to that. And he said, well, then I don't agree to, to be stationed there because it's, it's impossible if I cannot have these resources. And that's why, that's one of the reasons, I should say, that's one of the reasons the Swedes did not end up in Srebrenica and the Dutch did because the Dutch said, okay, the UN wants us here, so fine. Again, they, they were making a lot of decisions that would later have catastrophic results. And I think that even if they did play by the rules set up by the United Nations, the, the public in, in all of Europe and, and the rest of the world, basically, they quite rightly realized after the massacre in Srebrenica that these rules were counterproductive and they contributed to this to these horrors that, that occurred in Bosnia. And if we hadn't had these rules, if we had instead had a much more responsive, responsive and capable organization, then maybe a lot of people wouldn't have had to die. So I think that the, the political backlash, even though it was to a very large extent the fault of the UN, it, there, was, there were also blame on all sides, which I think is quite correct. Because if you try to micromanage something like this, it's, it's, it's not going to work. Yeah, unfortunately, you can see a lot of this blame game in large organizations as well. And it reminds me of a lot of board meetings in companies, especially in Germany, where they try to micromanage everything. And I'm always really astonished and asked the CEO sometimes, I'm like, if you're trying to micromanage every single thing, then basically you know how it's all going to pan out. And I'm like, okay, how do you know this? Do you have a glass ball? Because I don't know. Or the fact that they want agile project management, but then they want a detailed plan for the next six months. And I'm like, that's not going to work because it's going to change on a weekly or biweekly basis. We have to adapt to the environment. So if the environment is very linear and everything's predictable, hey, fine, then micromanage the shit out of it. But if you're in an unpredictable, volatile environment, then that's not going to work. It's like the old German saying, wasch mich, but mach mich nicht nass. So essentially saying, I want to wash myself, but I don't want to get wet. That's just not going to work. So looking at the current wars that we have, these very asymmetric wars, wouldn't the Swedish mission command model be more effective at fighting these wars? And let's just disregard if we should even be there fighting these wars, but wouldn't that be more effective? Well, I think it's, it's, it's always difficult to say that it's difficult to say that this would be like a catch-all solution to everything. But I would say that in general, there's always a bit of tension between what people probably realize is the best way to get things done, as opposed to the way incentives are created in an organization. So people want to, they may feel compelled to maintain control over things that they are responsible for because they don't trust people. And I think that trust is is the key word here. So the thing that makes this kind of command structure work, in this case, in Orbat 2, is trust. So the fact that the head of the army trusted the, the battalion commander, Henriksson, he said, well, I trust you. I trust your judgment. I give you this autonomy precisely because I trust you. I know that in a situation where I don't have all the facts, you will make the correct decision. You will know what to do. And trust is well. also somewhat interesting that in, in, in political science circles, we usually say that there are high trust 
societies and low trust societies. And Sweden is is traditionally a high trust society, but people trust each other and people trust, for example, the government. And I think this helps because this this it, it makes it easier to also have trust within organizations. But ultimately, I think you need to have this kind of trust. You need to be able to trust people. You need to have people who have the right kind of skills and you need to be able to to take a leap of faith, as it were, and to give people as much autonomy as they need precisely because you trust them to be able to use it wisely. And sometimes people make mistakes. In in the Swedish culture of mission command, this is also something that is part of it, that you realize that people are probably going to make mistakes, but you also know that they are going to learn from these mistakes. So you don't punish them uh, unreasonably for their mistakes. Of course, they have to have consequences for mistakes, but you also allow people to learn from mistakes. And if you don't, then you, you have a very passive organization where everyone is very afraid of making it the, uh, taking drastic action, for example, because they're afraid that this will haunt them. But if you have trust and if you learn, allow people to learn from their mistakes, I think that is usually a very good kind of basic outlook on how to keep an organization running, even if things, uh, even if unpredictable things happen. And even if you need to have a quick response time, this will, this will give you a lot of flexibility. Yeah, it also comes back down to how you view humans. Do you view them in a positive light or negative light? If you view them in a negative light, well, then you need to control everything. You need to give them orders and they just need to fall because, you know, they can't be trusted. And on the other hand, if you have a positive worldview of, of people, then yes, they'll make mistakes, but they'll do more right than wrong. But you have no, speaking in political terms, which is, I think, more libertarian, is you have no morally right to intervene because it's their personal decisions or an organization to just give them the autonomy. Because if you don't give them that, then you don't give them trust. And then my question would be, if you're hiring or have, have soldiers that are highly qualified, then why did you hire them in the first place? So I guess that goes kind of hand in hand. And also the, the fact that this one size fits all approach is it's always top down and it always has to be more nuanced in a sense. Okay, what is the objective? What is the war? What is the uh, mission we're trying to, to accomplish? And then determine what type of organization, what type of people, culture I need to most effectively uh, achieve that outcome. So going upon this, what are maybe some other things that maybe companies could learn from good military leadership that they might be lacking? Yeah, maybe have some examples or insights where private institutions could learn from uh, the military. Maybe not learning from the military in general, but learning at least from specific military examples like this one. I think that for organizations, like we mentioned, first of all, build an organization that is based on, on trust. So you have people that are sufficiently qualified to be able to, to handle that kind of trust. And then you need to look at what, well, what are my mission objectives here? What kind of degree of coordination do I need? And, and how flexible do I need to be? Are things going to happen quickly or are they going to happen slowly? And then you need to be very mindful of the kind of, kind of culture that you are creating within your organization. Because what, what I usually tell people uh, in business context is that you must understand that you will have a culture whether you foster it or not. If you don't care about culture, you'll still have a culture. It's just going to be one that you have no idea what it is. And you're probably going to have different cultures within a big organization. And if you don't know what they are and how they interact, then you may have there may be problems because maybe they have maybe they will develop hostilities uh, towards each other and start to undermine each other uh, and create all kinds of difficult situations that are not in the interests of the company. 
And one example that I, I was looking at a few years back, and then I never got around to actually publishing about it. Uh, I, I never wrote the article and, and published it, but I've, I've been using it as an example ever since uh, when I've been given presentations and, uh, and talking to people in business is that you should look at, at, at how NASA handled the Apollo uh, program in the 60s because i mean it's not it's not that it was like a military organization but it was uh, an example of what you can achieve when you have a diverse mix of cultures in an organization and you have this kind of trust that they will know what to do so you had people who designed rockets the german engineers and they built in all these margins in their rockets because that's that's what they were taught to do so they built more powerful rockets than the specifications required so when they developed this idea that, okay, you need this kind of power, they added a bit of extra margin, safety margins. And then you had the, the astronauts who were going to, to ride to the moon. And they were pilots. And, uh, well, if you know pilots, then you know that they like to be in control of, of their vessels. They don't like to be passive passengers. And the engineers didn't like the pilots, the, the astronauts, because they wanted things to be automated. They wanted to build a machine that they can trust because they didn't really want to trust people. But the astronauts said, well, we, either we get to, to control this thing or we're not going along. So they, okay, they had to relent. And then they had, had to give the uh, astronauts a way to control, for example, the, the lander that was supposed to land on the moon. And then you had the, the, the third final piece of this puzzle was that you had people who, uh, who they brought in from the, uh, the nuclear program, the, um, the people who had been developing nuclear missiles. And they were moving very, very fast. They were used to working very quickly because they had to constantly push out new designs, new products, just to keep step with, with the Soviets. So they, they said, that the, these missile people, they said that we need to very quickly get things launched and tested. And if it works, it works. We don't have to test it a hundred times. We test it. And if it works, then we move on to the next stage. Uh, because we will never be able to test anything uh, a sufficient number of times to get you know statistically reasonable results. We just have to make thing make things work quickly. And all of these three very different kind of cultures they worked together. And because of this, when when they had to operate the rockets, they needed more powerful rockets. Then the German engineers said, "Well, they already already are sufficiently powerful because we added these margins from the start, so they could avoid a costly delay." And then you had these missile people and they were pushing the schedule ahead because they needed to land on the moon within a fairly short time frame. They only had until the end of the 1960s. So they had until 1969 because that's what President Kennedy had said. So And also because they wanted to get there before the Russians did. And thanks to these missile engineers who keep pushing the launch schedule, they were able to meet this goal. And finally, when they were landing on the moon with the first, the first live landing with Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin and Michael Collins they ran into a, a problem they hadn't predicted. And that was that the moon lander was about to crash into a piece of rock that they hadn't predicted. And then Armstrong, as the astronaut, was able to take control and, and steer away from this and avoid a crash and land safely. So all these three diverse cultures together made it possible to land on the moon and get back safely. And I think that if either of these three elements had been missing, then it probably either it would have been too late or it would have ended uh, in a disaster. 
which would have had uh, huge uh, negative consequences, I think. But I usually say is that don't try to emulate military organizations because they look like they are efficient or because they look like they are able to handle these difficulties. Look at what's underneath in, in, in some of these cases. Well, you have these cultures and these cultures, when things go well, you will often find that it is because these cultures are well aligned with the strategic objectives, with what, with what you are looking to achieve. And sometimes you need a mix and sometimes maybe you don't, but you need to be attentive to the to cultures, I think. That's that's the key lesson here, I would say. Yeah, absolutely. And I'd just like to add, especially it's with, with Corona, we have an excellent example where Corona was not the cause of the supply chain disruptions, but it was just a symptom because you'll always have supply chain disruptions. And the thing is that most companies just don't want to realize or they just fail to understand is they just digitalize because everyone else was doing it. And they think, well, being more efficient is, is better, but actually overdoing digitalization makes the company more vulnerable because what happens now you've you're producing just in time because you've you digitalized everything you have no slack you have no inventory because again everything's just in time now what happens if you have some type of disruption tsunami earthquake whatever it could have been anything there you go you have absolutely zero flexibility but everyone was you know doing this this hype with digitalization just digitalize because it makes sense everyone's doing it being more efficient but not really understanding in what environment, in what context is my company actually in. And that makes companies much more vulnerable and less resilient or uh, much more fragile. That's the thing that people fail to understand or, or companies need to look at just because something looks cool or, or sounds cool. That, that, that's not going to work. You have to look at why is this working? Why is a certain country using this method, using this tool? And why does it work? Because it's oftentimes the context or the environment that makes sense with that specific tool. So what might work for one company might not work for another, or what works in one country might not work in, in, in another due to certain factors due to the environment. And if you're in a volatile environment, then you want inventory, so you have flexibility. If you don't have inventory, well, then you're not flexible. So to kind of wrap up this episode, if there are people that are interested in this subject that are active military or veterans, what books, articles, or publications would you recommend they read or could read? Yeah, sure. So if you want the, the short uh, version of, of what we have been talking about in Bosnia, there's the article that you mentioned at the start that I wrote. And uh, I'll, you have the link to that already. And then if you want to go deeper into these issues of, of organizational culture and, and strategic, how they can be connected to strategic objectives, then I would recommend looking at my PhD dissertation. And uh, I'll give you a link to that. And it's freely available uh, in its entirety as a PDF file. You can also buy it in print in Sweden, but there's really no reason to do so. I don't get any money if you buy it in print because it's it's just being printed on demand in that case. But the PDF has everything. And if if you look at the PDF file of my dissertation, you will find that there are a number of, uh, of uh, citations. So I cite literature from psychology, uh, sociology, and business management. And if there's anything you think is particularly interesting, you can always look up these books and articles that I that I cite, and that could give you some extra input. Uh, so I think that that would be a good and uh, and easy way to find uh, a repository of a lot of in literature and and uh, things you can use to to delve deeper, I think. Yeah, I'll be sure to include all those links in the uh, show notes. So obviously, I want to be very respectful of your time. So is there something that I didn't touch on or forgot to ask you that I should have mentioned? 
No, I, th- I think you covered it. But I think if, if we're going to summarize everything uh, very shortly, I think it is that trust is good because you are never going to be able to know everything you need to know to decide everything in advance and to react quickly enough when things change. So if you trust people to the, on the ground who are closer to where things are happening, they will be in a better position to know what to do than you are if you are in senior management. So I think tr- trust is is the key here, really. Okay. And if people want to get in touch with you, uh, what's the best way of doing so? You can uh, find me on Twitter where my handle is at Tony Ingeson. So Tony Ingeson in a single word. If people are listening who are uh, Swedish speakers, you can also listen to my podcast, my Swedish language podcast on intelligence, which is called Underrättelsepodden. Underrättelsepodden in a single word. And it's on Spotify and it's, uh, well, everywhere, Apple, um, yeah, wherever you find your podcasts, you'll find that as well. Perfect. I'll be sure to link all those in the show notes as well. So thank you, uh, Tony, again, for being on the podcast and taking the time out of your uh, vacation or holiday and speaking to our listeners. Thank you very much. It was a great conversation. Wow. I hope you enjoyed this very unique episode just as much as I did. And as my loyal listeners already know, at the end of every episode, I try to summarize the key takeaways along with some practical tips. If you haven't already done so, I can highly recommend you read Tony's article titled Trigger Happy, Autonomous and Disobedient Norbad 2 and Mission Command in Bosnia, which I also included in the show notes, of course. It was a fantastic read, fairly short for all those busy folks out there, and was also the inspiration to make this whole episode. So now let's try to sum up and give you some of the key takeaways. So if you remember during this episode, I mentioned the example of the former nuclear submarine captain, David Marquet, who advocated that you shouldn't push information up to authority, but push authority down to information, meaning your employees. So the way you can implement this is exemplified by the quote from the CEO of a Chinese white label manufacturer called Hire. In the past, employees waited to hear from their boss. Now they listen to their customer. What this means is that markets today move at a much faster, uncertain pace than, say, 50 years ago. You're like, okay, no shit, Sherlock. So by the time all the information about the market, the customers, the competitors, and so on move through the hierarchy, the market and customers have already moved on. Thus, it only makes sense to give your employees the freedom, trust, and autonomy they need in order to quickly respond to that change of the market. And I always found it very odd that no matter the type of context or environment, military or not, the same type of hierarchical command and control structure is used. So top-down decisions with essentially a strict adherence to rules and regulations. The reason why I found that strange is the fact that it assumes that the CEO at the top have all the information and intelligence to make the best decision at any given moment, even if it's an environment that has a high degree of uncertainty. Which kind of reminds me of one of Parkinson's law, which says delay is the deadliest form of denial. So the environment and the context you're in should really dictate what culture, people, organization, and resources you need in order to effectively accomplish your objectives. And you should never use a one-size-fits-all approach to anything in life. Instead, look at why a tool, a method, or even a mindset is being used and why, along with the context in which it's being utilized. I personally believe that it should be common practice in large organizations that rules are allowed to be broken as long as it's done to achieve the overall objective. 
If certain rules hinder your employees from, say, achieving their objectives, they shouldn't be, you know, they should be allowed to break them. No questions asked. Because remember, rules don't exist for their own benefit, but to generally make things run smoother. We all acknowledge this. Well, unless you're a bureaucrat, of course. So first and foremost, this obviously requires that you trust your employees and give them the autonomy that they need so they can make the best possible decisions. This, in turn, will lead your employees to make mistakes, which you should not punish. Also, that should be obvious, as this will create very passive and risk-adverse employees. And in the worst case, they'll become spineless politicians or managers that completely lack any sense of ownership and responsibilities, essentially people we all love to hate. If you're not willing to do that, then why in the hell did you hire your employees in the first place if you don't fully trust them to do the right thing and occasionally make mistakes and learn from them? Now, granted, for manager, this isn't an easy task as they have to grasp with the fact that their role has to fundamentally change in this type of environment. And they will have to give up authority and power and the false sense of control. Because let's be honest, we're never really in full control of anything. This power and control can often take the form of title, positions, and so forth that often represent influence. And for some, they are also status symbols. And for many senior managers, that's not really easy to give up, especially when you're so accustomed to it. So they too will have a very steep learning curve ahead of them. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, there's plenty more where that came from. Just head to our podcast website, innovationalcorrectness.com or gammabeyond.com, or just follow us on LinkedIn. There you will also find long-form articles, videos, and other podcast episodes about innovation and transformation. And if I could ask you for one small favor, it would be this. Please don't forget to subscribe and leave us a rating or review on iTunes, Overcast, or the podcast app of your choice. It really helps us out by encouraging more people to find our podcast and reach hard-to-get guests. Last but not least, if you have any suggestions, for further episodes or guests that we should invite on our podcast or just have feedback, you have three options. Emailing us at info at gammabeyond.com, filling out our anonymous feedback form at innovationalcorrectness.com, or leaving us a voice message with your question or feedback so that it can be included in the podcast and all listeners can profit. Just go to innovationalcorrectness.com. Links are in the show notes. 